Welcome to Bible Q&A, a monthly discussion with Luther Seminary faculty about everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Eric Barreto. And I'm Cameron Howard, and we welcome to our Enter the Bible podcast today, Matt Skinner, Associate Professor of New Testament here at Luther Seminary, to help us have a conversation about Eric's essay, What Happened at Pentecost? So tell us, Eric, what did happen at Pentecost? This is a really famous scene where there are people gathered from every corner of the world. There's this long list of all the different places they're from. Uh, they're gathered early in the morning for a festival in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, uh, these tongues of fire, tongues that look like fires, descend from the heavens. And all of a sudden, people find themselves... You've got to stop me there, because tongues that look like Wait. fire, I've already lost. <laughs> Well, you know, little it's just, flames. You mean it's it's this moment. It's like this um, this it's a Pentecost moment. Something okay. big is happening here, right. and Acts is looking for some sort of language to to say something about the enormity of this. Maybe there were tongues. I don't know. What would a big tongue of fire look like? I think it like means something stone. long and narrow. I think is what he's trying to say, like a little flame, like a, a flame. So th- they're at the flames. Yes, that that's what like I think. Tongues. Yeah. Um, so they they descend from the heavens, and all of a sudden, people find themselves being able to. Uh, to, to hear the gospel preached in their own language. Um, people are, of course, confused by this because this normally doesn't happen. And uh, the disciples get accused of being drunk, and their excuse is that they can't be drunk, it's too early in the morning, which doesn't stop some people, but it works in this case. Um, and then there's this incredible moment where Peter then preaches the good news, and all these, all these people join this emerging movement. So it's a... Uh, it's kind of this inaugural moment for the church. It's the first moment where these disciples step out on the stage um, after Jesus' ascension. And it's the beginning of the book, I think, in a powerful way. Why should we care? Um, you know what I mean? I mean, what, is this, what yeah. does this do that was, is unforeseen or that changes the church or whatever? You know what I mean? Why, does, why is this worth knowing about? So for me, I think why I care in particular is that I think it says something about how God looks at us and how God imagines the world and how God wants us to live next to each other. Um, God could very well have spoken one universal language that everyone can understand. But instead, what God does is that through the Spirit speak all these many different languages of the world. Um, And if we've studied a foreign language, you know this is an incredibly difficult and complex thing to do. I think that shows something about God's commitments to us, that God doesn't require us to leave our identities and our particularities at the door, but to bring them fully with us. Um, And that's what a church looks like, that a church... In this very first day of the church, what it looks like is a bunch of people speaking different languages. Um, I think that says something about who God is, but it also says something about the kind of people that we should be as well. Well, if we remember back to the Tower of Babel story, which some like to say, you know, Pentecost is the reversal of uh, the Babel story in Genesis 11, um, the speaking of different languages seems to be a bad thing, right? God says, let's go down and confuse their language there so they will not understand one another's speech. And then the end result is that the people are not able to continue building this tower and making a name. So is it is it not a bad thing to be so different from each other? Yeah, I think often that's how we read the Babel story. I think Luke might be reading that story really differently than we often do. Um, if you just think about it in this way, is, is, it a pro- is, is it a problem, is it a bad thing that we many of us speak different languages, that we live in different cultures, that there are differences in the world? And certainly negative things happen because when there are differences, there's conflicts. 
But we wouldn't want to lose that, I don't think. We don't want to lose uh, the many languages of this world or the many cultures of this world. Uh, so I think what it's actually happening in Babel, I think what Luke, what Luke thinks is happening in Babel is that God is kind of moving in this last step of creation, that this isn't a punishment that God doles out in the world and, and forces all these people to, um, to live apart from each other. But this is what God wanted from the very first. God wanted a, um, a full world, full of different cultures, full of different peoples. And what God wants in the end is for us all to live in the midst of that difference, um, not to try to you know, uh, hone away our differences, but to embrace them. Certainly the people are afraid to be scattered. Right. I've seen some scholars talk about this as a sort of vertical or horizontal axis, right? The people tr- are trying to build up and get get to God and particularly to make a name for themselves, as it says, um, so that if, if God scatters them over the face of the earth, I mean, there is that, that is a, it's a scary prospect a dealing thing. with all of this difference, but that there's certainly room in the story for that to be to be gift. There's something say. about that story I think that resonates with us. We like and we yearn to be with people who look and think like us. Um, we see evidence of this every Sunday morning. Uh, the people that we worship with usually think and look like us. Um, and I think that's, um, there's a positive side to that. I think there's a sense that we want to belong where we are, that we don't want to be isolated and alone in this world. And I think in, in, in the Babel narrative, it's a matter of being out in this big empty world all by yourself. It's much safer to be in one place um, and this big tower may be providing protection for you or, you know, whatever the, the purpose of the tower might have been. But I think God realizes that there's, I mean, it wants us to realize that there's something else out there for us. Uh, there's something else that we're missing when we only gather with people who look and think like us. Uh, so that, that moment of Babel is a moment of, is, is a dangerous thing to step out into this big world um, and to embrace all these differences. But in the midst of that danger, there's a great blessing as well. Uh, so that what happens when we get to Pentecost then um, is that this is, doesn't reverse Babel at all. If it did, they would all speak one language like they did before God struck down this tower. Instead, we find people speaking all these different languages. And more strikingly after this, people still have uh, disputes over language. People misunderstand Paul later on in Acts. Um, there's still um, misunderstanding and difference that's still present. So ba- Pentecost doesn't fix what Babel has done. Pentecost embraces the results of a a world after Babel and says, this is where God is. And it calls the church to live into this sometimes messy reality too, I think, because you've got just, you know, four chapters from now, you're going to have a dispute among widows, some who appear to speak Greek and some who appear to speak Hebrew, and they're they're mad because they're not being treated fairly. So Pentecost doesn't fix that, doesn't fix the difficulties of people trying to live together despite these differences. But what it does do is say, you now all belong to each other. Are you all going to be part of this community? So I like that. I think if you look at the first two chapters of Luke, uh, the promises that this good news is going to go to the very edges of the world is already composed there, mostly in the, in the songs there at the beginning. Um, and then we see this moment in Pentecost again, uh, this, uh, this wide net that God is drawing. But I'm also struck in Acts that so often when, when things start melding together is also these this, this fraying at the edges. So right after Acts reports that everyone is selling everything that they have and holding it in common, Ananias and Sapphira start, you know, the, the community starts breaking apart. You have the Hellenists and the Hebrews, these, this dispute over the widows. Um, and it takes Peter a long time to embrace Cornelius for who he is, even though he gets his vision from heaven. That seems to be really evident and really clear from, from the near reading of the narrative that, I find that sometimes the church 
kind of lags behind what God is doing. So that God makes clear what God's intentions are, but it takes us a long time to embrace it. And I think that's part of the, the th- message of Acts as well. I think, too, it takes some, a while for some of the realities to fully emerge for mm. what they're going to be. So right. even though in Acts 2 you've got this incredibly multicultural setting, Acts is pretty clear. These are all Jews all or Jews. converts to Judaism. There right. are no Gentiles in this crowd. So this mm-hmm. is still a Jewish thing, so to mm-hmm. speak. Mm-hmm. We still have eight chapters to go before either God decides or people realize, oh, wait, this might matter for other groups. Other so groups, yeah. not always. This is still, this is only the beginning of several moments of these mm-hmm. kind of grand unfoldings or grand expansions of yeah. what's going to take place. In yeah. Acts. I think it's also, again, God walking alongside us because it takes us a long time to sometimes realize the full implications of what God is doing. Yeah. I love that language is a marker of this difference. I mean, because when I think about, you know, can I describe God with words? Hmm. Can I get hmm. to God with words? I can't. I can't do that with one set of adjectives or one set of idioms that there is no single language or utterance that's big enough to hold oh, all the things yeah. God is. That's why we have the Bible, which has all of these very different stories and often very d- different depictions of who God is. But something about language, right? Even when I'm going from Hebrew to English. So for example, Hebrew has um, uh, one conjunction, a little vav, that means um, both and and. So, but, yeah. so, you know, in grammatical terms, the copulative and the adversative. That so both and and but, right? It's the same. Uh, but, did I say, yes. I think you said and and I think and I said and, fine, well, yeah. yes, and and but. <laughs> right. So contrast or two things or join together two mm-hmm. things. So in English, we have and and but, um, so when we try to translate then into a, a different language, there is there is nuance yeah. or a, a, a relationship that is not exactly translatable, right? Mm-hmm. So that different languages allow for different relationships between words, certainly, and maybe even between ideas. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we all have different words yeah. that we can bring to our conversation about God is really exciting to me yeah. because it can get at some of that fraction of that fullness of who God is. What's really striking about translation, I think there's always this this slippage, this way in which this language is not exactly like that language, and that's a challenge for people translating, whether it's from Hebrew to English or Greek to English. So there's kind of this seeming obstacle there. What's really powerful about that is something about how the, the particularity of a people in a language can teach us something about God that maybe we wouldn't know before if we didn't encounter them. Um, that there is this richness to God that one language, one word can encapsulate. But in the, in, the, in the exchange across these differences, we might actually discover something that we ha- could never have seen before. I'm curious about how all of this connects to Pentecost and how the church celebrates Pentecost even now. Yeah. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit is a really big deal in some Christian yes. traditions and denominations. Others of us don't always quite know what to do with yeah with how to talk about the Holy Spirit. So how do you see this passage helping us today beyond kind of embracing an identity that's bigger than just me and appreciating difference? I mean, what else is going on? Because my church doesn't look much like this on a Sunday morning in terms of people all jumping up and speaking different languages about the deeds of God. Yeah. Um, I think it's partly thinking about Pentecost not as this one-time, one-off event, this thing that we kind of looked in the past and lament that things aren't that way anymore. But we might imagine how the Spirit is still working in our midst in, a, in ways that are Pentecostal, 
um, that maybe don't have all the fireworks and don't have all the fire and all the different languages being spoken. But that we have even these kind of ordinary moments in our lives when we encounter people who are different than us. And all of a sudden, the Spirit shows up when we start understanding one another in a way that we normally wouldn't expect. Or that we have this encounter and we learn something about God we didn't know before. Or we have people that should have nothing to do with one another, but because of their common commitments to God, rally around a cause or rally around uh, God's work in the world. Those are Pentecostal moments. They don't have all the fireworks. They don't have all the all the crazy miracle stuff. We don't see that every day. But we see these little minor miracles all the time if we have if we know how to look for them. Well, I like that because at the very end of Acts chapter 2, we sometimes forget this is still part of Pentecost because the fireworks yes. are done, the preaching is done, the conversions are done. And then beginning in verse 43, we get this really short description of the community yeah. about how united these people are. And what they're doing is some of these things are extraordinary. They're selling their possessions and goods and distributing the proceeds to all. But otherwise, they're just they're eating together. They're, they're sharing their, each other's company and glad and generous hearts. They're praising God. They're worshiping together. They're living ordinary lives of kind of shared um, support and worship, which I can do that. And, yeah. and that's still Pentecost. The, the Spirit yes. creates this community. So it's... You, you don't see a community in verse 43 lamenting that Pentecost is now done. I mean, obviously, th- these people are still together. They're still speaking different languages, um, but they're living together. They're learning how to live next to each other and to understand one another so that they're not looking back and lament. And I think our, our, you know, our Pentecost services shouldn't do that either. So can I still be a spirit-filled Christian then without speaking in some strange language that I don't know or even like a foreign language? Is that the point? So. so I think so. I mean, I think we have all these expressions of Christianity that, um, that we maybe experience or at least heard about where people speaking ec- ecstatic speech, they're speaking in tongues. Um, I'm not sure we need to necessarily dismiss that as a possibility. But there are ways in which the Spirit manifests in, in different ways. We don't need, again, just to look for the extraordinary. But in these ordinary moments of life, Pentecost shows up just as powerfully as it did in, the, in Acts chapter 2. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for joining us on Bible Q&A. You can find more information at enterthebible.org. Join us again.